Hello, and welcome to another episode of Resting Batch Face, the only Top Chef recap pod where the hosts, if presented with the Inspired by Gelato Challenge, would channel that inspiration into just eating as much fucking gelato as possible. I'm joined as always by my friend and co-host, Gwen Kirby. Gwen, how are you doing today? I'm doing fabulously. I am excited to talk about a dessert challenge. Uh, I don't know much about cooking. I'm sure... No one has realized that listening to the first two episodes of this when I've spoken about cooking with so much elegance. But dessert's actually something I know a little bit about making. So I'm excited to talk about it. A lot of pressure it. on you. And I'm excited to make sure that our podcast brand of not knowing shit about cooking remains solid, even if you do wreck <laughs> the grade curve by talking about baking. Before we get into that quick fire, I do just have to say, again, a favorite trope of mine at the beginning of these episodes Brittany even referencing survivor's guilt for having made it out of the prior challenge. And I just, you wish that you could see this kind of thing in like the price is right. Where like the person who gets the correct bid and like is able to play the game is just weeping as they meet Bob Barker or Drew Carey or whatever it is. Just like, <laughs> it's just, I think of my, I think of my friends who didn't make it this far. Brittany starts in tears and the episode doesn't go much better for her from there. Yeah. So... The good news about her yeah. survivor's guilt spoiler is that she's not going to have to have it for very much longer. The only other thing that I'll throw in before we get to this quick fire is I don't know if you noticed this, but there is a quick montage moment in the, in the morning as they get ready to go into the Top Chef kitchen in which Avishar is shaving with a straight razor, which I have to say makes me think more of him as a chef. Like just the level of confidence you have to have in your hands yeah. To shave with a fucking straight razor. I'm like, this dude must have knife skills. I did not notice that. Good catch. The only other people I can think of who use straight razors are when the, you know, when the hero has been shot in the romance novel in, in you know, Edwardian England or something. And the heroine has to, has to carefully use the straight razor to, to shave his beard. You know, tension, tension filled, sexy scene. But no, bad respect, Abishar. This is a pro Abishar podcast. This is a strongly pro Abishar podcast. And obviously the quick fire is a, a moment where Abishar shines. Anyway, this is a dessert quick fire inspired by gelato in that manner of Top Chef branded quick fires in which the inspiration is pretty abstract. Um, they don't have to use any gelato. They just have to make something with layers as this gelato brand has layers and i will say when they introduced carrie from the colorado season as the guest judge and the reason is that she once made cake in a pit on a mountain <laughs> it just made me think of that moment in iron man when jeff bridges character is just so mad that his scientists can't figure out how to reproduce tony stark's miniaturized arc reactor and he just starts screaming tony stark made this in a cave with scraps and it's like, Carrie made this cake in a mountain in a pit. I very much look forward to trying to get the sound levels of that to even out in any way, shape, or form, which it's not going to work. One day, one day, another producer will yell at somebody else, Gwen Kirby got the sound levels correct <laughs> on free tech. And she had to deal with Dan's voice. So surely you can do this. Listeners have just heard it and know that that is not the case. Well, I got a lot of things to say about dessert. And before we, we introduce your expertise, I just, I guess my question is, 
What do you make of the, the chefs, and there are always several of them, who are confronted with a dessert challenge as if it is both impossible and completely unpredictable? It cracks me up every season. And it's not only are they like, what? It's also that, like, I swear some of them have never had dessert before. Like, Chris makes a hazelnut cake. Good. It's smoked chanterelle pastry cream. Those are mushrooms for those listening at home that do not Yes, know. those are mushrooms. Like, why? And, like, the look on Padma's face was like, why? So with, with some of these people, it's just literally, like, not only are they shocked, shocked that they would have to make dessert, they legit don't know what dessert is. Quick Chris moment. I don't know if you noticed this, but during Chris's discussion of what he's making they change the background music to like soft violins to try to just like make fun of how fancy he was with his like pinot noir whipped cream or something it's like dude make a cake quick shout out though jamie became my spirit chef this episode and has now even for me surpassed abishar in terms of people i just love this is what she says i don't like to make dessert because it takes time and you have to measure things. <laughs> Which is like precisely how I feel about like most cooking. Like I don't want to do it because it's hard and time consuming. Jamie, if you're listening, and I- I'm sure you are, please produce a cookbook that's called I Don't Like Things That Take Time and You Have to Measure Things. In which the recipes have no measurements and everything you cook takes like 15 minutes max. I would buy the shit out of your cookbook. Seconded, and I loved her description of cooking, where she was like, as with cooking, you just go, pew, 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 pew. And I just, you know, I if, if that worked, I'd be a much better cook. Uh, but no, Jamie's fabulous. Jamie, I thought was going to be too scattered to be successful in Top Chef. And that has so far very much not proven to be the case. So on the flip side, though, the anti-Jamie, right? Jamie doesn't like to make dessert because it's precise. Abishar is just like... What if I fuck with some liquid nitrogen? And I have to say, this is where Top Chef is to me at the weirdest, is when people are casually using liquid nitrogen. And a big part of that is, I I don't know about you, Gwen, my first exposure to liquid nitrogen just as an idea is in Terminator 2 when it is posited <laughs> as basically one of the only ways to stop the T-1000. And liquid nitrogen stops this like liquid metal shape-shifting robot long enough for Arnold Schwarzenegger to shoot it and have it shatter into pieces. And this just seems like a weird thing to use in a kitchen. Now, we are, of course, not experts, but I feel like when Abishar says, you know, the, the, the problem with liquid nitrogen is if it's too cold, it will rip your taste buds right off. Again, that's just a very big red flag for me. I don't know. How do you feel in these episodes when people are just rolling out liquid nitrogen like it's just like kept behind the cornstarch? I did a tiny bit of research about liquid nitrogen. Uh, it's negative 321 degrees Fahrenheit. So I, I would not fuck with that. I watched a video about it in which the person informed me that liquid nitrogen deaths in America are from suffocation, not because it's cold. So resting batch face nation, don't use your liquid nitrogen in small unventilated spaces. It's not safe. Then there was a frankly just spine-chilling discussion in the comments about whether or not you should wear gloves while holding the can of liquid nitrogen, because on the one hand, you don't want to get any liquid nitrogen on your hands, but on the other hand, it can get into your gloves and then burn your skin to the gloves. (laughs) All of which made me think, 
do we need to be able to freeze basil leaves so that we can crush them into a powder? Or could we just not? So yeah, I would not fuck with liquid, liquid nitrogen. I can see why they don't use it on Bake Off. This is now a very officially Luddite cooking, <laughs> cooking show. I will say, though, from a pure viewing standpoint. Oh, it's great. Right? Like, who's cooler to root for than somebody who effectively uses liquid nitrogen? And who is more fun to root against than somebody who fails using liquid nitrogen? I mean, just the two ends of the spectrum, if I think about it, like, one of the most fun people to root for in the show's history is Richard Blaze, who's this, like, mad scientist who's always using liquid nitrogen and, like, fucking guar gum and shit and agar agar and just weird alchemical processes. And who was more fun to root against than Marcel, who was, <laughs> like, a boot like Richard Blaze, who was trying to do all this metric astronomy shit and was failing. So seeing it succeeded is very impressive and exciting. Seeing it failing, it's like the hubris to think that you should introduce the shit that killed the T-1000. And yes, <laughs> listener, I know that he did not die from the liquid nitrogen. He then reconstituted and was, was killed in the, the steel, steel mill forge and all that kind of stuff. But point being, if it has any effect whatsoever on the T-1000, I'm not sure that you need it to make... A dessert whose sole qualification is that it is inspired loosely by a gelato. Yeah, I try not to cook with things where the person teaching me how to use them is like, you think it's going to kill you one way, but in fact, the most likely way for you to die is this other way. Yeah. I tend to give that a pass. Except for grad school, where it's like, you think it's going to kill you from the work, but really it's the poverty. (laughs) So we are given 10 out of the 13 dishes are shown to us. Brittany, Kiki, and Maria are on the bottom. Sarah, Abishar, and Byron are at the top with various items that we'll get into. But which, what did you want to eat the most? That's a good question. Byron was on the top with his goat cheese ice cream with fig and dates, which I'm sure was good, but was a little bit too much, too close to chanterelle pastry cream for me. <laughs> I was very curious about Abishar's Buckeye bonbon. I don't know what liquid graham cracker means. So I would be super curious to try that. I have to admit when the look on Padma's face when she was eating it, I thought Abisher was in, in real trouble. But I think maybe the one that I would I would want to eat most is Sarah's uh, cream puff. I love cream puffs. It looked fucking delicious. How about you? I mean, the thing that threw me off with Sarah's was just, I don't know how to articulate in my mind what whipped cream with miso would taste like. Me either. I mean, I know that she was on the bottom, but like, the peaches and cream that Kiki put out looked pretty exciting, as well as Maria also on the bottom. I thought she was wrongly on the bottom. Oh, she I made agree. this arrows cone leche with plantains, and their only criticism is there's too much of it. It's like there are 13 motherfuckers in the room to say nothing of production if you want somebody else to eat some. Like, just it's not like you finish any of this anyway. Just take a bite and move on. I agree. They're like, it's too much of a good thing. Meanwhile, chanterelle pastry cream isn't in the bottom. I don't, I love that Maria is just like, I don't know how to make a small amount of food. I will say one thing about the goat cheese ice cream, all things connect. So I've actually had goat cheese ice cream at Jenny's of, in all all places, Columbus. I mean, as some of our listeners, and by that, I mean, most of them, because they're friends with us. know. me and Gwen met um, at school in Cincinnati and Columbus is not very far from there. And Jenny's, I, they may be more national now, but I'm pretty sure that they started in Columbus. And the goat cheese and cherry, I think, is one of their 
their more popular kind of famous ice creams. And it is, it is certainly very delicious and creamy and not too sweet, which is why I find it a little bit funny that Abishar, who like reps Columbus more than anybody who is not like a drunk Ohio State fan, <laughs> is the one who eschews things like goat cheese and just goes with his, his Buckeye bonbon, which again, it sounds like, I mean, he had the highest degree of difficulty. He could have died as far as I'm concerned, <laughs> fucking around with, with liquid nitrogen. And he has this moment where he like bursts into tears and says he's it's never so... won anything before. <laughs> his face. He's so surprised when he wins. He's just so like genuinely honored and tickled. And all I can say is, Abishar, welcome to Darth Tater. We're happy to have you. What a sweetheart. For those who have no idea what the fuck one is talking about, <laughs> that's the name of her top chef. Fantasy League team and Abishar is in fact a member of that team. Woo! In the in, in the wars in the wars to come. I will just say, I mean, again, just thinking about what these these short challenges kind of show us about about the contestants. I will just say Shota produced smoked whipped yogurt with matcha and yuzu kiwi. And I don't know that I really can taste that in my mind, but I will say I would have had no doubt that was Shota. Yeah, totally. He is not struggling at anything, least of all having a point of view and and showing his voice as a chef, which is what is often demanded. And that's going to be even more so in the elimination challenge. Yes, as we will, as we will get to. Well, is there anything else you want to get to from the, the quick fire? I mean, as like awkward product placement quick fires go, it's not terrible. Like there was that one last season that wasn't it from like children's dolls or something. Oh, that was so creepy. I don't even remember how they made that related to food. Or wait, no. Was the children's dolls Project Runway? Okay, there was something weird last season though, where they had to do like purple icing on shit. And it was like... It was related to some children's thing, and it made no sense. The point is these are very, very hit and miss. And, you know, a little bit, um, like, there's some synesthesia going on. Like, there was a yogurt challenge on Project Runway once where it's, like, be inspired oh, yeah. by the color <laughs> of the yogurt. Or just, like, be excited by, like, be inspired by the excitement level that the yogurt brings. And then you'll have Project Runway, and they're like, here's some random prod. Here's a... Here's a Mercedes or like, here's a hybrid car. Make us a hybrid soup or something. It's like, <laughs> man, you guys lost control of that one, but cash them checks, cash them checks. Yeah. This one I thought was good. It has layers, make a layered dessert, give 10 grand to Abishar. That's fair. That's fair. Lather, lather, rinse, repeat. Well, before we get to the um, elimination challenge, which is, really interesting both in terms of what specifically happened and what it speaks to in terms of larger trends in cooking and culture and all the important issues that it gets to. We wanted to pair that heavy slash serious slash important content with the most frivolous thing we could imagine, which is something we're calling, what are we calling it? Again, remind me, this is how important it is. I don't even have it in the notes. We're calling it Gwen's Food Minute. Gwen's Food Minute. And it just, it hurts me that we're not good enough at podcasts to have just like some really fast light violin music <laughs> just going to kind of set the stage of just like what we're doing here. Also, listeners, feel free to guess before she starts whether she's going to go over or under a minute and I will tell you how long it lasted. 
All right. Well, first I want to explain the premise of this segment. So I don't know about you all listeners, but during this pandemic, I've had to do a lot of cooking uh, and I've ended up actually enjoying cooking in a way I was never expecting before. And so I was in my kitchen and I was cooking an egg and I was kind of like, that didn't go all that well. I should Google it. It literally never occurred to me to Google how to make an over easy egg. So I did. So Gwen's Food Minute is going to be a one-minute exploration of how to make something easy slightly better. And I do mean slightly. Uh, so are you are you ready to time us, Dan? Born ready. Also, I've been timing. Oh, fuck. <laughs> well, all right. So if you want to make an over-easy egg, there's a very few things that are going to be very helpful. One I didn't know, don't crack your egg directly into the pan. Crack it into a bowl first. That way you can control where you get the egg on the pan and getting them together. When you get the eggs in your pan, lots of nice butter, sizzling, sizzling, tilt the pan up slightly so that your eggs kind of move slightly towards the edge of your pan. This is gonna keep your egg whites from spreading too thin, cooking way too quickly while your egg yolk still really hasn't cooked at all, and you're not gonna get that weird kind of crackly edge on your egg, which you don't want. Then nudge your egg a bit, get yourself ready, get yourself hyped, take your wrist, flip the egg. This actually worked. I flipped my egg just using my wrist. I didn't even need a spatula. It was magical. Took it right off the heat. Pan's hot enough now to do any little egg yolking you need. Get that toast ready. Put it on down. It's fucking delicious. Boom! Very impressive. Gwen's first cooking minute only went 70 seconds. And the other good news is that if I attempt this technique, my dog is going to end up with a half-cooked over-easy <laughs> egg, which I believe she will be very excited about and hopefully will only result in a manageable amount of subsequent vomit. So, I was I practiced my flipping with some red bell peppers first so I could kind of get in the flippy mood um, before I did it with my egg. But I gotta say, it worked really well, and I immediately texted my husband way too much about how proud of myself I was. So... <laughs> Give it a shot, y'all. Don't crack those eggs in the pan and use the pan tippy method. It's going to be really interesting for each of our listeners to decide if this information is completely fucking obvious <laughs> or somehow still intimidating, despite the fact that Gwen was able to master it. Well, speaking of white people cooking. <laughs> how, dare, how dare you? <laughs> the challenge this week. The challenge this week is actually a really interesting one, um, which yeah. was to engage the food of the African diaspora and particularly to use what seems like a pretty robust diasporic cooking community in Portland as the foundation for these chefs, some of whom are very versed in these flavors and some of whom could not be less aware of their existence as they try to make a meal that engages these flavors. And as always in Top Chef world, the challenge for the chefs is going to be to balance their own cooking style with the specifics of the challenge, in this case, particular flavors. But I kind of want to start with a broader question that I kind of find interesting, and, and I don't know the answers, and I also don't think that we're particularly the best people to talk about it. And yet here we are, which is as you think about diasporic cooking, or you think about this very idea, as Tom would say, to translate to take another culture's food and to try to make it your own. 
where does the line for you sit between cultural appreciation, which is to say engaging this food as a way to, to celebrate the cultures where it comes from and to honor those cultures in meaningful ways versus cultural appropriation, which is to say just stealing slash manipulating these important artifacts of cultural expression in a way that just benefits be it white restaurants or white eaters. And I don't know the answer to that question, but I'm curious for you, where do these kinds of these kinds of challenges feel like they work for you and they feel like they're on the right side of the line and where do they feel problematic? So this is a great question. And I will definitely echo Dan's sentiment that I am both not informed enough and, you know, very white and thus, I'm, and in many ways, not the appropriate person to to be answering these questions. Um, so, I guess I'll start by saying that you know, obviously, there's a really big difference between like what you can do as a home cook versus what you're doing as like a restaurateur. Um, and that I think engaging with these flavors and these cultures at home is a is an incredibly like wonderful thing, and is eye opening. And I know when I research recipes that I've never cooked before, primarily ones that are um, Mexican food, because if that's not my, it's not my cultural food, but it's certainly my hometown food. Um, I end up reading about people and places and ingredients that, you know, open my mind and broaden my just understanding of the world. When it comes to cooking as a chef, I feel like challenges like this can be really successful in two ways. One way I think maybe is best exemplified by Shoda in his dish, which is to say that he takes on new flavor palettes, but brings it into food that is still very quintessentially his own, which is to say that it, it expands his horizons as a chef, it pushes his boundaries as a chef, but it did not, to me, feel like he was appropriating that food. I think the other way that it's positive is that it can open these chefs' eyes to the kind of food cultures and the chefs that they should be more actively promoting. Like it makes me think a little bit about when I have an undergrad who's white say like, oh, well, uh, writing should be more diverse. Does that mean I should write black point of view characters? To which I'd say, no, but you should be promoting black writers who write black characters, right? That like, the more educated you are about the voices that are missing, whether those are literary voices or food voices or whatever, the more you can be capable of finding those writers or those chefs help, you know, not helping. That sounds incredibly problematic, but being aware of them and being aware of, you know, if, if you're helping to silence those voices or et cetera, et cetera. So I, I think when it leads to awareness and an expansion of the palette and a celebration that that's all really great, I think like, you know, I don't know. I'm going to stop there and I've already talked too long. Dan, what do you think? I think a lot of things, um, many of which echo what you're saying. I mean, to me, I think about these questions in writing as well. I mean, obviously different forms of writing, different genres stem from different cultures. And the question of, I mean, for me, for, for honest, honestly, I think about this a lot with like magical realism with like white people writing magical realism. And even that is complicated because there's certainly an Eastern European tradition along with the Central American tradition as long, along with traditions from basically every part of the world. And so the thing that I find often most interesting about writing is the question of universality versus particular. Like there's something immensely exciting and 
literally, honestly, like kind of like humbling and moving about the idea that all of these different cultures across time are all in a sense engaging in the same project of storytelling. And there's something universal about that. But at the same time, there are deeply particular components of storytelling to particular cultures and a blanket statement of universality as moving as it may seem in the moment can be pretty violent, especially when the framework for that universality hashtag Campbell might be developed by somebody deeply steeped in a Western tradition. And therefore that Western tradition has a kind of confirmation bias that fits everything within that framework that makes it, makes it universal. So in that same way, I think it's very, yes, humbling to sit around and be like, we all eat food is universal. And yet the particular, I mean, not just cultural politics, material politics that lead different foods to be in different places are steeped in history and violence in a way that seem important to acknowledge. So I guess my feeling in terms of these, when I'm watching these episodes or I'm thinking about just like the way that people sometimes can pat themselves on the back for equating eating lots of different food as being, whether you think about it in terms of multiculturalism or you think about it in terms of diversity, whatever you want to think about it is a, it's certainly not just enough to like eat this food. I mean, it made me think of like literally like posts you would see after some of the the violence against Asian Pacific Americans recently, where it's like, you love our food, but you don't love our people, right? And I mean, what has become more, in a sense, mainstream in America than Chinese food? And yet, certainly that does very little to sort of protect Asian Americans or immigrants in this country from the kinds of bias that, in theory, the universality of that culture's food might, in a sense, create. I think, again, like it, it all comes down to like you were saying in terms of, of opportunity. I mean, to me, the the most kind of moving or just like punch me in the stomach moment of this episode is Kiki talking about how much of her life she spent cooking food that was not her own. And again, that's that's capitalism, right? I mean, that's like letting what there is demand for and how she is forced into spaces in order to make a living to try to cater to that demand as if there's that demand is not structured by bias. And so it, you know, it makes me think, and this relates to your students' idea as well, like it's not just obviously, right, like right from a different point of view, right? It's not just about how you represent things. It's, and forgive me if there's any people who actually know things, who know what I'm quoting, it's something I've forgotten, but it's something like that the politics of representation precedes the representation of politics, which is a way of saying like, you need to put people of color in positions to have power and to make decisions. That is much more important than the question of like how white people represent people of color in their forms of art. And so I do think that this episode, and again, it speaks to who their audience is, and I'm not saying they're wrong about like who's watching and what their understandings of different kinds of cuisine are, but it's like, let's show this audience something they don't know, as opposed to just the question of like, how can we get a larger percentage of the restaurants that people are going to go to? cooking this kind of food and creating opportunities for people of color who would be cooking it. So again, that's probably 10 minutes of white people talking about, you know, how white people affect the restaurant industry. But it's just something that, that again, I, and certainly this episode is, is, is super conscious of it and is talking about it. And in terms of the question of like, again, politics of representation, preceding representation of politics, maybe they just convinced me of this, but I feel like this episode was largely driven by people like Padma, Gregory, and Kwame, and not just in terms of like 
the way that the show is hosted, but in terms of like the idea for the show and the way that they, the, the businesses that they want to put forward and the way that they want to talk about it. And so in that way, like this, this felt like a very good, interesting episode, but still cannot be divorced from colonialism. I mean, literally, right? Like the British empire colonizes South Asia and takes the spices, right? And brings it back. But at the same time, the other way to think about it is that like, an effect of colonization is that you then have people who live in South Asia going back to England, et cetera. And those people, those immigrants bring the spices with them. So they're able to maintain their identity while they are in a place that does not necessarily accept them. And so this like bind and this back and forth between reappropriation and appropriation is just this kind of like endless back and forth. I mean, one of my favorite things that they said in this episode that I like the framing is like both Gregory and Kwame at one point were basically saying like the point is not let's get more of these ingredients into American food. The point is understand that there is no American food without this history. And again, that history is immensely violent, but this is, I guess, a kind of space, safe-ish space to think about the potential positives that come from that kind of intermix of culture, even if the initial interaction is violent. I agree with all of that. And I, there was that, I believe it was Kwame who said, you know, if you're coming to this and you're saying, oh, I've never had Pan-African cuisine, you're wrong. You just haven't recognized the things that, that have been taken from that culture and from that, that food and put into, into the food that you do eat. The other macro thing I'd like to talk about here, which is a little more top chefy, is just as it relates to both the potential risks and rewards of when you are given a challenge that hits immensely close to home. Mm. So like in this episode, I think we saw people at all ends of the spectrum. Like we saw people who had no experience with these flavors excel. Hashtag Shoda. We saw people with no context for these flavors go down in flames. Goodbye, Brittany. Brittany. But we also saw people, right, who had a context do very well. Dawn, for example. And we saw people who had a context really struggle. Kiki. And it just made me think, I mean, a little bit of, again, this kind of, this thing that comes up when we are engaging art in the particular context of for an audience that, that art is not always for or an audience that is not the same as the identity of the person producing it in that I think that, I mean, Kiki's not only dealing with the personal emotions of like thinking about cooking something that her dad cooked, but to a certain extent, this, this double bind that then artists of color in any field are in where the expectation is that the art they have to produce has to relate to their specific experience and identity in a way that white artists don't. It is a lot easier to be a fucking tourist and to be like, I forgot his name. He had ridiculous hair. I want to call him a Travis, but if he wasn't a Travis, whatever. But just this white guy like four seasons ago who insisted that he was the expert on Vietnamese cuisine. And in a sense, it's like a lot easier to be a tourist as a white artist than it is where the expectation is obviously, right? If then you have a chef who's Vietnamese, the expectation is why aren't you making more Vietnamese food and that kind of thing. And yeah. It's just a, a, it just is an expression of the kind of impossible positions that artists of color get put into, even on reality cooking shows. Yeah, I, I mean, that's, that's absolutely it. And we really saw kind of both sides of the coin with that. We have the, we have Dawn, who 
Well, they both, I feel like they both, it's, it's very weird. Cause like, obviously you're right. Like they're put into that position of sort of having to, having to represent themselves in this food. And there's a way in which that's both really empowering. You can see in Dawn, someone who's really wanted to be able to cook that kind of food in this kind of space, but also see it really sort of crippling for Kiki, who kind of wants to do that same thing. But when it goes wrong, it's not just a critique of your dish. It's like a critique of you as a human being in this way that's pretty devastating. I mean, she says when she's at the bottom, like, if I go home for this one, that's going to really fucking hurt. I don't know if anything I said there made sense. No, it does. I mean, what's funny of her, though, I mean, she nails the stew, which to me seems by far the harder part. And yeah. she fucks up She fucks up the foo-foo. But you're right, right? I mean, it's like if you write some weird-ass science fiction piece and it kind of sucks, it's not really a reflection of your yourself in the same way. Whereas if you write something deeply autobiographical and everybody in workshop is like, I hated this character, you can feel like they're saying they hated you. Um, which yeah. is certainly something that has happened, happened to people. I will say, I mean, Shota's success, you mentioned the kind of respect that he showed the ingredients and kind of acknowledging the gaps between himself and it. Um, it just reminded me of this line from some piece of critical theory by, I think the dude's name is Daniel Boyarin. He also has a brother who's also a cultural theorist. Like one of them should have just been a fucking cook or something, but like, <laughs> it's not just about accepting difference, but it's about allowing difference to be different. And Shota's dish to me seemed like very clearly like a nod and, or if you'll forgive me, given his literal gestures, a bow to this cuisine, but a complete understanding of the limits of his comprehension in that way that, again, felt felt very respectful and was at the, the best ex- kind of example of keeping yourself, like parts of yourself while like not ball, again, nodding to difference and allowing it to be different. Whereas Brittany, oh, Brittany, Brittany, Brittany. Oh, I Brittany. mean, I just felt bad for Brittany. I, well, I'm bad for Brittany. They're all successful chefs who are going to be fine. But maybe this is just really mean and inaccurate. But when I was in Berlin, I got to say it was lovely, beautiful city. The cuisine was not the highlight for me when I was in Germany. And she's like, oh, I'm really like excited to make my German food and kind of ends up making this, this sauce that I wonder if it was good before she dumped a bunch of coconut milk in it to dilute it, that she's just making a really, I don't know, a really different kind of food. Or I'm not sure. Brittany just was obviously really in her own head. Yeah. And, you know, she says when she's in the bottom, like, oh, well, I don't have a very high heat tolerance. And I feel like their response was kind of like, well, there was a lot more to these dishes than them being spicy, right? That they are, they are spiced and that you can still like embrace spices without it needing to be spicy. And that there was like a, that there was a a disconnect for her where it just like, I, I don't know, she wasn't able to do that. And I mean, they were even doing their typical thing where they're like, she could have tried using a bit of salt. You know, they were throwing her under the bus at that point. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's plenty of these other other dishes that, that, that we can get into. So just a reminder to the listener, on the top, we had um, Dawn One with her curry goat, crispy roti, fondant potatoes, and a green puree that you got the sense they could have eaten for days. It was so pretty. Jamie was also on the top with crispy snapper, 
Saya, couscous, and pickles, and then shota with his black cotton cabbage, and the sauce that had dimension, which I would order the dimension sauce. I, I will just say shota passed. It's weird to say that he passed another test here because he's aced everything that's been thrown at him. But the thing that I mentioned earlier, you worry about with a chef like Shota that has such, such an established lane and knows how to work so well in that lane is would he be able to step out of the lane? And this was the first big test for him to do so. And he obviously did so with flying colors. Yeah, I thought about that. I mean, it's always it's always the test to see if you're a chef who says like, I cook Japanese cuisine. And then, you know, it's the Pan-African cuisine challenge. Are you going to figure out how to how to incorporate that into your cooking and not just try to imitate a dish that you've just eaten, which I feel like I've seen, I've seen chefs get shot down for that at judges table being like, you didn't incorporate this into your food. You just tried to imitate someone else's food. And it's, it's an exceptionally difficult balance. And it's one that is made more complicated, as you say, when it inflects the personal, whether it's the personal for Kiki and that it's, relates to food that she is deeply committed to or to Brittany who I'm sure had some kind of anxiety about like what the fuck this even means like how do you do something that is both not is both you and not you um in a way that you feel you feel okay about and obviously did not did not handle it did not handle it amazingly I mean poor Kiki I mean she, she says this dish is for my father I will say it's the thing I'm most excited to try to cook Saka Saka in that it's like a big mm. stew and I do better with throwing a bunch of shit in the pot and letting heat and time do its work without me, frankly. Um, yeah. So I'm excited to try to mess with that. But it also, I mean, there was a kind of, there was a small irony in this that I wonder if Kwame was thinking about. So Kwame on his season almost got sent home in a challenge that was very personal. It was a challenge where they were asked to make something. that's like the first thing they remember from childhood. And he talked about having a really complicated relationship with his father and he made a dish that by all accounts tasted like father issues. Mm, oh God, I remember that. And that so rough. this is not the same thing. It seems like Kiki has a, had an excellent relationship with her, with her father that was like wilting under the pressure of trying to make the fufu correct for them. But again, you see all aspects of it and it does seem at least a unifying thing in terms of this show is they do judge it based on the food. But like something being too personal or not personal enough can each create can each create problems for these chefs. On a positive note, it seemed like there were a ton of good dishes. Like there were a number of people who I thought might be in the top based on the comments. Abishar's dish sounded delicious. Shrimp and grits with Bengali-style eggplant escabeche and taro, which that sounds fucking delicious. Babes seemed like it went really well. The braised chicken with heirloom beans, plantain, dumplings, and I don't know, think I'm saying this right, pickles escabeche, which also sounded delicious. Um, huge shout out to the season. I feel like I have never seen plantains in so many dishes before, and I fucking love plantains. So I don't know, just a general huzzah to that. I will say, because no Top Chef recap podcast would be complete without taking a moment to shit on Gabriel. I think I enjoyed most mostly in this in this episode Gabriel getting called out for his quote designer mashed potatoes. That was great. Somebody said their mouth was taken hostage by goat cheese, which Kwame. is Kwame which I have that. to say like I want to watch that thriller. <laughs> I want to watch the action movie where there's a hostage situation 
and everybody is being taken hostage by goat cheese. And of course, Richard Blaze, who at least in terms of like an avatar, if you had to pick like an avatar of like the construct of Portland as this mm. sort of like oh, yeah. very liberal, but like tone deaf white city, you would pick Richard Blaze, him and his liquid nitrogen. He's the one who calls out Gabriel saying, I'm just going to say it. This dish is too white. <laughs> Which was pretty funny. It was indeed. It was indeed pretty funny. Well, I already said the thing that the thing that I'm most excited to try to cook here again is the Saka Saka. But I'm curious, what is the thing that you are most interested to try to cook? Oh, gosh. I would be so bad at making all of this. I guess it's no surprise to say that I'd be the most interested maybe in trying to make Maria's dish. I feel like I could... I could make a bean bean puree with an oxtail, maybe. I don't know. Probably not. But I'd like to try it. I don't know. I like everything Maria. She had one of my favorite quotes this episode where she says, talking about being at this at one of these wonderful Pan-African restaurants, and she says, I was going to be that Mexican. Tortillas, please. <laughs> and so Maria just wants to wrap everything in a tortilla, and so do I. It's going to be very exciting to learn in Gwen Kirby's next one minute of cooking whether being from Southern California is enough to make good Mexican food or will her generational whiteness trip her up? <laughs> it's, it's a lot of whiteness to overcome, but I did buy a tortilla press. So that is bound to help. It can't hurt. Um, let me ask you, did this episode, this challenge change your mind about anybody? Like, is there anybody that you leave that's still with us that you feel kind of more or less confident in? I feel less confident in Chris. I, I thought this might be a challenge where he would excel a little bit more than he did. Um, and I don't know enough about cooking to judge this, but people kept talking about the fact that he made a bunch of technical mistakes. And then Calicchio really gets after him. He says, you gave us a collection of ingredients, not a dish. You're here to cook. Cook. Which, you know. That's you piece of shit. To the heart. Yeah. Yeah. How <laughs> dare you? Look, you cooked all this fucking food, but did you did you really cook it? Or did you just make it? You worthless son of a bitch. <laughs> um, who else? I don't know. I, uh, I'm i getting more and more confident in Sarah. Sarah continues to look like an anxious frazzle basket, but she also continues to be either in the top or making dishes that they don't really have anything bad to say about them. So I think I think for a chef like Sarah, the longer she hangs in, the more acclimated she's going to be to the environment and the more able she's going to be to keep cooking successfully. My mind has changed. I already mentioned on Shoda. He, he passed yeah. what for me is the final test. I guess the final actual test is like if he has to cook something on a Bunsen burner in some random chemistry lab. Um, but in terms of engaging flavors outside his comfort zone, this was a, this was an A plus for him. And your boy Avishar, I mean, we already know he has the high ceiling. The question is about the floor. And just any run of sustained competence from Avishar since opening night is just going to do nothing nothing but bring bring confidence. Yeah, I felt, I felt great about him this episode. Um, I think Jamie is starting to really prove that she's got... She's got what it takes. And I just feel like there are, a, I, I think there are a lot of chefs in the middle right now who may rise and some who are going to fall. And I, I don't have a sense yet of like the, those people in the middle of the pack who are, who are not fucking up, but who aren't yet really excelling kind of where they're, how they're going to shake out. 
it's an interesting season because there's really no time to get your footing. There's so much depth to this class that like some of these people I imagine in another season would have like three, four weeks to get more of a groove going and to figure out what the hell they're doing. And this, this season, you know, you're, you're running out of time because everybody seems really good. Yeah, absolutely. Well, should we should we go then to to Last Chance Kitchen? We should. I cracked up every time. Um, oh my god, I've already forgotten his name. The first eliminated Roscoe. Chef. Every time poor Roscoe had to yell out the time, I thought of our conversation from the last podcast and just felt felt very bad for him. I had a question for you about a Roscoe shout out, and this to a certain extent, this is just a question about, for lack of a better way to put it, being a woman. <laughs> So Roscoe, at some point, he just yells out, I don't even remember if it was to Sasha or Brittany, like he, he is required to say, like, what are you cooking? And they tell him. And he yells out, get it, boo-boo. And it was just making me think of just how common these, like, weird nicknames are, always for women in this show, and yelled by women, by men, things like, like, hustle mama, get it, boo-boo. Like, is this something that you have experienced? like this kind of this kind of nickname I'm trying to think uh, I mean I guess like between between my fellow women friends and I yes I feel like you know like you got this bitch like that kind of thing I do not appreciate being encouraged by men when it's like babe sweetheart all of that is, is a hard pass for me. Boo Boo is kind of in a middle ground. I would need to be fr- like, if you're a stranger calling me Boo Boo, that would be a no. Uh, I don't. I guess if you're like a poor eliminated chef sitting at an uncomfortable stool while I cook, maybe you get a pass with Boo Boo. I just can't imagine that Roscoe has spent that much time with Sasha or Brittany that he's at the boo-boo level, but like boo-boo seems fine. They seem to be okay with boo-boo. Maybe it's a kitchen thing. I know that that's its whole other culture. Yeah, that could, that could well be. Um, He, he would get a pass for me on boo-boo because of the circumstances, (laughs) you know, but uh, I don't know. Yeah. The the nickname thing is, uh, I'm just going to go ahead and say, if you're not sure you're that close to me, maybe skip it. I'm just imagining the look on your face. If like you and me were at like a coffee shop and you're like, all right, I'm going to go grab us some waters. And as you were walking down that hallway, I just screamed out, get it, boo-boo. <laughs> well, that would be weird for a lot of reasons. Yeah, I don't I don't see that happening. In fairness, none of my women friends would, would yell that out at me either. Anyway, it just it just stuck out. It stuck out. The, the, the Last Chance Kitchen challenge itself was a one-pot dish, which I have to say – I wish that they did this as a quick fire. They did this as an elimination challenge. Um, honestly, like this is the kind of thing that I'm most likely to feel confident emulating because it has the fewest steps. And again, I just find these kinds of things like stews to be naturally more forgiven, forgiving because flavors have a tendency to balance out when you give them enough time on low heat. So when Jamie makes her cookbook about like lacking measurements and time, Maybe this is something that she'll throw in there, but Brittany made a seafood chowder that looked delicious and sort of doable. And Sasha okay. made a chicken cacciatore with raisins for some reason. Which they liked. They, I thought they really liked it. I mean, I know they have to say they really liked it, but it, it, it seems pretty sincere. 
I mean, if the if the raisins were a fucking train wreck, she wouldn't have won the challenge. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Galicchio, perhaps just he felt overwhelmed by having to spend a whole episode not being an expert on a cuisine when it was explicitly non-white cuisine, was very excited to talk about Italian food as it related to raisins and to just be back in charge. That he was. I enjoyed Brittany being peak mid-Atlantic when she was over kind of by the ingredients area and she's just muttering, Old Bay, Old Bay, Old Bay, Old Bay. I just felt like it I was took right you back to, to your Hopkins days. Took me right back to Baltimore. I was really, I was feeling it. Yeah. But no, I mean, it looked like a delicious dish. And as you say, I, you know, cooking things in one pot, we're, we're speaking my language. I, I know, I know how to use a pot. <laughs> so. Sasha also, I did enjoy the extent to which she talked to her food as she was cooking. She was like, go baby, go cook, baby, cook. Are, are you a talk to your food while you're cooking kind of person? Yeah. I'm a talk to myself <laughs> while I'm cooking kind of person. So yeah. Yeah, I definitely do that when I'm alone. I was really digging Sasha's energy. This, yeah. this she's she seemed like she was having fun, like embracing the spirit of Last Chance Kitchen, which is just kind of like this is an exercise that is almost guaranteed to end in failure, but I'm gonna like have fun shooting the shit with my boo boos until it's <laughs> over. I don't know. You know, she just like she had good energy, and I was I was digging it. Brittany was like having to cook her mid Atlantic clam chowder as a form of therapy, which was a little bit a little bit rougher, but she she came out of it, you know. So yeah. Well, we want to thank all of our boo boos for listening along <laughs> with us on this journey. Um, as always, we look forward to your feedback, comments, or questions or just pet names at <laughs> batch underscore face on Twitter or resting batch face at Gmail. And for those who are new to the show, again, batch is spelled like let the last name of Johann Sebastian Bach. Um, this was a fun episode and hopefully we don't sound too stupid talking about real issues. Also, if those of you who are listening have heard much smarter people talk about this in a much better way, please put it in the comments because I would love to hear that. Yes, very much same. But regardless, you know, we're, we're, there's only a couple more episodes of Temptation Island, so be excited, Top Chef listeners, because you're going to have our undivided attention soon, and who knows what that will lead to. More free time for me is what it's going to lead to. More, more time for you to attempt, attempt new cooking techniques and attempt to keep your descriptions of them under one minute. I mean, come on, Dan, that was a great segment. It was. I think our listenership is going to spike on that. And oh, I'll yeah. let you know. I'm going to try it and I'll let you know how it goes. Oh, please do. I'll be I'll be inordinately excited to hear. Um, Brett should maybe videotape your attempt at flipping it just well, for my personal enjoyment. T- <laughs> <laughs> at the very least, I'll take a photograph when the egg is on the floor. If please I can do. manage to do so before the puppy dog is on the scene. It's going to be a very, very short window. You're going to want to have the phone right at hand. Indeed. Indeed. She has a gift. All right. Thank you all as always. And we'll be back next week. Bye, boo-boo.